0: Welcome to Retro
1: Game Audio. My name's Patrick. And I'm Steve. And what are we talking about today, Steve? Well, we're going to talk about Sharp's 16-bit arcade-inspired powerhouse, the X68000, and its awesome YM2151 FM sound chip, which is also known as the OPM.
0: Yes, we're finally going to dive into the confusing and, dare I say, robust world of Japanese PC gaming.
1: Yeah, so (laughs) I guess it's worth saying right from the start here. Well... Um, finding information about Japanese computers from the 80s is exceedingly difficult. So we've uh, really tried our best to confirm what we could here. Uh, A lot of what we found is secondary, tertiary type stuff. I mean, this is something that wasn't heavily reported in Japan, translated into English, and then put on a website. So, you know, it's very difficult to find things. And I'm trusting websites like VGM RIP uh, to have adequate labels for VGMs and soundtracks.
0: Yeah, I just sort of have to trust them at a certain point. Yeah. So, and this is also complicated by the fact that there was an incredible amount of homebrew um, by hobbyists, I guess they're known as uh, Doujin, Doujin, how's that pronounced? Doujin. Doujin, developers in Japan, and, uh, you know, many of these were uh, ports from other consoles handled by secondary teams, you know, which, uh, which we'll discuss in a bit.
1: So, yeah, I'm not trying to make an excuse before the episode even starts related to our lack of accuracy here, but just be mindful that we try to get the best information we can. I mean, we always do, but uh, this one, and especially when we talk about these, I mean, we're eventually going to do episodes on the PC-98 and, you know, uh, the FM towns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's always going to be difficult to make sure that we're 100% accurate because I feel – it's very hard to be accurate because there's just such a massive volume of uh games and they weren't really recorded i mean some of these games were uh you know kind of made in people's homes and shipped out by mail (laughs) you know yeah
0: which uh, you were telling me a bit about before you know off podcast and i was surprised by like how small scale like homebrew some of these developments were yep it's crazy stuff So uh, anyhow, perhaps we should get started with the history of the Sharp X68000.
1: Yes, but I think since it's the first time we've talked about Japanese computers in general, maybe we should discuss a bit of the scene in Japan at the time.
0: Uh, Yeah, to help us put this into perspective, uh, Hardcore Gaming 101 provides a really great retrospective on this uh, that we'll post here for you to check out. Um, But here's sort of like our Cliff Notes uh, version of that article.
1: Yeah, that article is really long, but I figured we could definitely talk a little bit, use that kind of as a guide here and kind of give you the information that we thought was interesting from it, just kind of building into uh, what we want to talk about today, which is the Sharp uh, X68000. So Mm -hmm. let's just start kind of from the beginning here. While the West had IBM, Commodore, Atari and Apple building home computers in the 1980s, NEC, Sharp and Fujitsu were building their own for the Japanese market. Of course. And, you know, of course. Uh, None of these were compatible with Western computers, because, of course.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, The first major computers of the time were the Sharp X1 and the NEC PC 8801 and the Fujitsu FM7. These 8-bit-based PCs were all released between 1981 and 1982 and set the standard for Japanese PCs, uh, much like the Apple II or the Commodore PET did in the West.
1: Yeah. And I would say, honestly, uh, kind of drawing from that, the most interesting thing I learned from this article, honestly, is that none of these computers could display Japanese kanji characters out of the box, meaning that you had that everything had to be written out in long form hiragana or katakana or even English just to display kanji required extra graphics cards or extra graphics programs. And even then on an 8-bit machine, it took a very, very, very long time to display. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a major pain point for uh, early Japanese PCs.
0: Yeah, so that led directly uh, to the move into the 16-bit era of PCs. During the 8-bit era, NEC was also selling the PC 9801, which specifically was designed to display kanji characters at high resolutions at great speeds. Since uh, so many people bought the system for business applications, it became widely accessible, which meant if you wanted to sell games, tons of people already had a PC 98 series. In 1986, major upgrades to these systems basically set it apart from the PC-88 8-bit systems, and thus the PC-98 solidified itself at the top of the PC gaming throne for the next couple of years. Uh, Hardcore Gaming 101 says there were almost 4,000 titles released
1: for this platform. And and again, we could could never know that because (laughs) a lot of these were homebrew. That's probably counting the homebrew as well. Um, (laughs) But I think the most important and most interesting thing here is that the innovation of Japanese PC computing was based on the speed of text display. That's, you know, it wasn't necessarily graphics or sound until we get to about 1986. The PC-98 series went on to be the most popular PC in Japan. Hell, the PC-98 was around long enough that the very last version of it could run Windows 95. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's crazy. I remember that's something else we were talking about before off podcast, and that that really surprised me.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, but of course, this episode isn't about the PC ninety eight.
1: Uh, yeah, I suppose we should start talking about the Sharp X sixty eight thousand.
0: Right. So, uh, the Sharp X sixty eight thousand, which I have a terrible habit of calling sixty eight hundred. I always have to. Ca- I always. Oh pre- yeah, I- no,
1: I, I have the same problem. It's really funny. I keep typing sixty eight hundred too. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's like it. It's like pains me to say sixty eight thousand. Just because I guess I never like refer to. Th- I've never like had a conversation with a person about this console before in person. I think.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: <laughs> so I, I think that's part of like the. I'm just not used to saying it. But uh, yeah. So the Sharp 68000 featured uh, Motorola's 68000 microprocessor, uh, hence the name, of course. So without going into too much detail, basically the X68000 was just much better than the PC98. It's kind of like comparing a custom-built Alienware PC to your work laptop. Uh, So for 1987, it would have provided the best and most complete performance. Uh, But of course, performance has a cost.
1: Yeah, the X sixty eight K debuted around three thousand dollars,
0: and adjusted for today.
1: No, no, no! It was three thousand dollars in nineteen eighty seven money, which means it would be like sixty five hundred today. I mean, (laughs) that's you know, you could get a pretty decent used car for that price. So, I mean, who would who would actually pay that much for for something like that?
0: Yeah, I think the Amiga two thousand might have been. Nickname that because it cost two thousand dollars. Maybe I, maybe some <laughs> Amiga enthusiast could uh correct me on that if I'm wrong. I think I remember my dad <laughs> saying that, and we had a two thousand. So I guess that means my dad did drop like basically two grand on a home com- computer. Wow. Um, back like in the early nineties. But so I can kind of understand to the appeal, like that that there are going to be people be people who are going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the fact that this is over a grand more than yep. that Amiga, that's crazy.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I mean, at that so at that level, I think only extreme enthusiasts are really going to be willing to fork that kind of money over. Yeah. Probably worth the price if you're really into that, you know, and, and you really wanted the performance. And it was powerful enough that companies like Capcom and Konami, you know, wanted to use it to make games, uh, arcade games.
1: Yeah, it's true. The The actual uh, X68 case internals are similar to Capcom CPS-1 arcade board, which just happens to be the board for Street Fighter 2. Uh, In fact, uh, Yokoshima Mora wrote the soundtrack to Street Fighter 2 on the X68K. So maybe talking about it as an extreme enthusiast or a hobbyist dream is quite a bit wrong. I mean, in, in some ways, um, it was also a powerful development tool and music creation device.
0: Yeah, yeah, a developer's tool. And again, to compare it to the MIA, again, that was also mm-hmm. used by developers. So. Yeah. Um, so getting back to the history a bit here, the X68000 saw many different upgrades through the years, but always maintained itself as a hobbyist slash dev slash music device uh, for the most part. While the PC-98 continued to dominate the Japanese PC market well into the mid-90s, the legacy of the X68000, you know, eroded.
1: Yeah, the X68K had a couple of issues.
0: Yeah, so number one, it was simply too expensive to upgrade. There were numerous processor, memory, hard drive, and even sound upgrades, but they were also very expensive. NEC computers used more standard equipment, more people had them, so there was just, you know, more supply for those kind of parts
1: yeah absolutely um i mean you know if try looking for any of the extra x68k equipment today it it is insane i mean it's like you have to look at like a you know want to buy or you know like it's like hidden in the corners of places it's very difficult to find anything for it so you know it it just shows how many were sold in in my opinion um i guess the other issue which would be issue number two is well it has notorious power supply problems yeah um, yeah, and so the last time I was in Tokyo, I had a X60K expert in my little hands. Like, literally had picked it up, was ready to check it out from uh, Tokyo Beep. And to clarify, that
0: X68,000 uh, expert is a platform, not a person.
1: Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's not It's not the expert. It's it It's one of the... Uh... <laughs> right, okay. Just making sure you yes. didn't
0: pick up a person and try to take them back with you. Okay. I
1: tried to take them back home with me, yes. Right, okay. Um. So... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I even asked uh, James York, uh, Chief Beats, uh, if there was, you know, how much it cost to send things to Japan Post because it was so heavy. I mean, those things are like tanks. I was trying to figure out how I, I would send it home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, and even then, that was still $500, even today. Oh, um, wow, wow. To buy it. I mean, but it came with a keyboard. I was really excited about it. But. After doing a little research and just kind of asking around, I, I was told specifically by many friends, uh, I'm a track man, uh, basically told me this, and then I kind of verified it, was, well, the you know go look about on the internet about power supplies. What I found is that the X68K was the first computer ever to have a soft on power state, which meant the power supply was on all the time. Hmm. Um, I guess the way to explain this would be like, you know, your PS4 when you turn it off and it's, you know, it just kind of goes into a standby mode and starts yeah. blinking yellow. It's, it's basically the same idea. Um, so either way, obtaining a 30 year old computer that was likely on for a good part of those 30 years right. <laughs> probably means that you are going to have to either replace the power supply. Yeah. Um, In fact, by 1995, many people were scrambling for power supply parts, which there was like a lot of talk in the like Japanese gaming magazines about that. And so, many, if not all, X sixty eight Ks on the market have upgraded power supplies and/or aftermarket power supplies because they all died. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of uh, complicated guides on how to actually take a modern power supply uh, and you know make it, take it, and kind of set it up for your uh, for your X sixty eight K. But when I, when you are kind of messing with power and stuff, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that mod. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't be messing with the power supplies of these things, especially if I spent $500 on this. Yeah, so, I would leave that uh, in someone else's hands. Yeah, I, I'd let the ex- experts handle that. Uh, you know, And it's just really sad because, I mean, I, I was playing, I wanted to keep a beep, and it was just, like, the coolest thing. Like, the graphics are really cool. It really does look like an arcade console uh, in your own hands. But, yeah, I mean, that was enough to chase me away. And, I mean, I have a bunch of, like, useless... Uh, consoles and stuff in my house so yeah it it's just sad
0: um so uh, issue number three we had listed out here was its overall power so the x68k technically outlasted the pc98's uh, production by two years uh, with the last nec pc98 model rolling off the shelves in 1992 so the final nec computer could do one thing that the x68k couldn't though like you said earlier run windows 95 um, IBM compatibles had invaded Japan during the mid-90s and were quickly becoming the standard. This doomed the uh, longevity of the X68K. Luckily, Sharp had moved into making microprocessors and components during this time, um, so they weren't as concerned. Yeah, one of which was uh, the they made the Sharp LR35902. This is the processor in the original Nintendo Game Boy. So...
1: Just kind of as a side note here, kind of picking up from, uh, you know, just you're mentioning the PC the last PC ninety eight model. There was one more after that, the very weird PC ninety eight two one RA five four uh, three, which was an Intel Celeron based PC in two thousand. Like, oh, what? I it, we'll have to investigate that when we do the PC ninety eight episode. That's really weird. I can assume it ran Windows ninety eight. That's so strange. Huh. Anyway, <clears throat> I guess. Number four, and I, I guess the very last one, um, other boutique hobbyist consoles started to appear. So, you know, the PC 98 was something that almost everyone had in their house, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and this was a hobbyist console. So, all of a sudden, other companies started to decide, well, ho- hobbyist PC technically, but other companies decided to enter that market by c- releasing their own consoles or PCs that were for hobbyists and for people, t- uh, you know, who really valued the arcade experience. So the Sega Mega Drive was released in 1998 and billed as, you know, having a Sega arcade console in your own home.
2: Correction. Steve meant 1989, not 1998.
1: To make matters worse, the SNK Neo Geo appeared in 1990, was marketed towards the same hobby as gamers, and was significantly more powerful. It was also only $650 at its debut, so like maybe $1,100, while the X68K was still on the market with the same hardware it had in 1987 mostly, and was still at a $3,000 price tag.
2: Yeah, that's So,
1: I mean, that's really tough. I mean, the Sega Mega Drive did not do great in Japan. Um, but you know, if you're looking, if you're in the market for something that's going to play and bring the arcade experience home, you had other options and they weren't $3,000. Yeah. I mean, this all eroded at the fan base for the console and it appeared as early as 1991, 1992, that Sharp had no intention of uh, upgrading their systems to meet these requirements. Uh, Sharp had planned on making a 66 megahertz X 68 K known as the power X, which utilized the Motorola power PC. Yes, that, that's the same Motorola PowerPC that was in the Macintosh PowerPC line of computers. Um, but it was canceled when Sharp continued uh, continued to realize it had more of a niche market in components and amid concerns that the market for PCs was becoming simply too competitive. Sharp was a much smaller company than a lot of its competitors.
0: So to summarize, I guess we'd both say that the X68K was a niche computer that was extremely powerful. Uh, it had a great library of straight arcade ports and also you know had very useful development tools. Uh, But then it got overshadowed by other innovations, uh, you know, especially due to the lack of hardware support. But even today, the computer looks great and sounds great. And that's just a testament to the overall design of the system itself.
1: Yeah, I'd say that, you know, if I look back on it, it really reminds me of when I see Amiga today. And I'm like, wow, that would still be passable. I would still like to play this. Like, it still looks that good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the X68K is very much something like that. Uh, you know, in terms of, wow, you know, if I had, that's why I saw it. I I played it in person. I'm like, I have to have one of these. How much will it cost me to bring this home? Um, you know, but the thing you did mention in there was sound. And this is a show about sound. Um, yes, it is. Yeah. I like to get carried away in the history and hopefully that was pretty informative and in, in kind of setting the stage for other episodes we'd like to do on PC, uh, you know, Japanese PCs. Mm-hmm. But this is a show about sound.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah, so let's get talking about the audio.
1: So, we've already done a show on the Sega Mega Drive slash Genesis, and it's YM2162, also known as the OPN2, FM chip, which uses six channels of four-operator FM synthesis. Well, the Sharp X68K uses the YM2151, known as the OPM. This provides eight channels, so not six, eight, and it's the oldest standalone FM sound chip.
0: Yeah, so we're throwing all sorts of crazy numbers and, like, a brief, It's, like, hard to get all the, the names of these chips straight sometimes, but the... Again, to recap, it's the Sega Genesis had six channels of four operator uh, FM, and this is eight channels we're talking about now. Uh, so it's a couple more. Yeah. And, um... So, in terms of differences, though, between the OPM and the OPN2, there's only a couple. The main one is that the 6-channel of the OPN2 can be used for 8-bit PCM sound samples. Uh, The OPM does not have an integrated way of producing samples.
1: Yeah, and so as a result, the uh, X68K had a companion chip, the uh, OKI-MSM6258, which allowed the X68K to play back 4-bit ADPCM samples.
0: Ah, okay, so uh, it's going to get a little technical here, but we should note that there are differences between uh, PCM, DPCM, you know, used by the NES, and ADPCM, which the OKI 6258 uses. Um, here's a good way to look at this without getting too technical. PCM stands for pulse code modulation. DPCM stands for differential pulse code modulation and is a form of PCM. ADPCM stands for Adaptive Differential Pulse code Modulation, and is a form of DPCM. So it's all sort of like umbrella uh, categories. Um, so, you know, and these are all just ways to play back samples. That's probably the easiest way to think about it. And uh, they all accomplish the same goal, really.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, if anyone would like to give a simple explanation in the comments here about the clear differences, we'd be interested to know. Um it appears that it has something to do with the digital analog uh, conversion DAC, but I'd rather have someone who's experts uh, speak out on it, uh, this matter, because, you know, it, it's um, to me, to my ear, they sound kind of similar. I know that the process is different. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, that's, that's its own rabbit hole. We get the whole episode eventually on uh, sampling and sample playback. Uh, I seem to recall someone coming up with an ADPCM player for the NES, uh it was something along the lines of the like the the same way people stream 7 bit audio through the system mm-hmm. you know it's not what it normally does it just normally does the 1 bit uh dpcm i know i know a, a distinction for the dpcm is that it can only everything has to change the waveform can't stay static it ha- there has to increase or decrease in value as it goes um so that i think that's one that's something that differentiates it yeah So anyways, if that all just sounded like a bunch of gobbledygook, uh, the important takeaway is that the samples on the X68K are going to sound better than NES samples, but worse than Sega Mega Drive samples. Basically, you can think about it as like samples that are 1-bit versus 4-bit versus 8-bit.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it should sound, I mean, despite differences between those three different bit rates, they shouldn't sound terribly different. You know, I think the four-bit samples would sound similar to Game Boy samples, but again, the the you know the Game Boy is four-bit PCM and not ADP AD PCM, so I'm not sure about the fidelity issues regarding that. But you know,
0: <laughs> yeah, the the bit rate is the key thing here, I suppose. Uh, when we asked around, most people said that the bit rate would determine how we heard the sample uh more than the way uh, of how the sample was produced if that
1: makes sense yes so hopefully that isn't too confusing to our audience here so sorry if it is
0: (laughs) yeah just just picture uh nes samples uh on the bottom you know sega genesis samples at the top of the spectrum that we're talking about and uh this is just somewhere in the middle kind of alongside the game boy
1: yeah yeah. And so I guess, you know, just uh, so we're talking about that difference. Another difference, I guess, uh, between the YM2151 is that it lacks the YM2612's uh, ability to change the third channel to four separate operators. Though it does have an optional noise mode for the eighth channel that allows it to use just one operator to make some interesting noises. I haven't played around with it much myself in my work with the OPM, but I've heard other people who have used it to great effect.
0: The YM2151 slash OPM also lacks an SSG engage mode, um, which is something we mentioned in the Mega Drive episode.
1: Yeah, and I asked around, uh, you know, to some friends on Discord who are in the Battle of the Bits scene, uh, you know, just trying to get a general idea. Like, what is the real difference between these two chips? And Movie Movies 1 specifically stated that nearly all the sound patches that work on the OPN series of FM chips work flawlessly on the OPM, excluding any of those that have an SSG engage or LFO mode.
0: So basically, it's the Sega Mega Drive slash Genesis with eight channels of FM instead of six, and one dedicated sample channel. And, you know, unlike the Genesis, it's missing the legacy, you know, the 8-bit voices doesn't have those in there.
1: Well, uh, you know, more or less, yes. I mean, I was told very specifically that they are very much the same, save for the features we mentioned above.
0: Which is funny to me, because on, like, a cursory glance, like, it really sounded like this is higher quality than Mm -hmm. Sega Genesis. That was the impression I had. Um, maybe I was just fooled by there being more channels of FM. Um, but something about it that sounds particularly crisp to me. So, uh, but it, it could just be like a confirmation bias. Like I, I think it's a higher quality platform. It's a, certainly the whole platform itself is way more powerful than Genesis,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, better graphics and other stuff maybe led to that impression. But, um, th- that's funny that it, it is the quality of each individual FM channel is basically comparable. I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah. And, and to attempt to shed some light on this, um, I took some instruments from a YM2151 VGM, I put them into DefoMask, I you know, then re- went over and recorded them uh, directly off the chip, then I also took those same instruments and I made a file for my Sega Mega Drive and then played those off the console as well. Um, so what you'll hear here is the instruments on YM2151 followed by the instruments on YM2612.
0: Yeah, okay, so some of those notes, I, I felt like I heard a little bit of difference, but s- some of them I couldn't tell a
1: difference at all. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it. I really have to look at them kind of, you know, in tandem. I, I spent a little bit of time listening to it. I noticed maybe some difference in attack. You know, if you guys can hear it better than me, please put it in the comments below, you know, here, <laughs> for the track here. I, I had a little trouble hearing it diff- being different. But as you can see, you know, for one, they worked on both consoles. So they're the same instruments on both consoles. hmm yeah, I'm just going to have to do a little bit more research on that. I'm not really sure. I know that when I play VGM files back, uh, you know, from an X68K game or a YM2612, uh, that they show different frequency rates. I'm sure it has something to do with it. Anyway, the next thing I want to demonstrate uh, you know, just as, as an exercise here is how a 4-bit sample sounds different than mega, uh, the Mega Drive's 8-bit samples and the NES's 1-bit samples. The best way I figured I could try to do this was to take a couple uh, samples and then play them back on the Mega Drive and the NES. Uh, for the 4-bit sample, I sampled down to a 4-bit rate and played it back. While this isn't best practice, I, I don't really have a device that currently plays 4-bit ADPCM. Uh, you know, the Nintendo Game Boy is 4 bit PCM. And if I'm going to get it wrong, I may as well be completely wrong. Sure. <laughs> Instead of using <laughs> a different console and method. So here's a couple samples. You'll hear them on Mega Drive, then 4 bit Microsoft AD PCM, and then on an NES. Deflamask.
2: Deflamask. mask. Devil mask. Devil
0: mask. I still think I love the crappiness of the NES DPCM the most. It I does, love the, it does
1: I, have a charm to it. Yeah. yeah I,
0: I love how terrible the vocal samples
1: sound in there. It's great. Yeah. It has that like little crunch in there that you didn't intend to. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and so as you can see, like uh, you lose some fidelity as you go. Um, and I guess it's, it's, it's kind of bothersome. I mean, you, I, you said you just liked it. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it no musically, like there's a kind of a sweet spot. I think DPCM is a little too low quality, I actually really do, even though I haven't messed around with making Game Boy music much myself, I mm-hmm. actually really love how the 4-bit PCM sample sound on the Game Boy. Um, I think that's a, a sort of a sweet spot for, like, lo-fi sample playback. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the, the X68K is in an alright spot here. Um, yeah, because it's... Now that you mention it, it's you can hear that samples in X68k music, they are a bit lower quality than Genesis samples. Yeah. But you don't really notice it that much at the end of the day.
1: I, I think so. I mean, like, it really is just that you you, you have all eight channels to to make FM sound and a lot of people will, you know, Put just like a kick drum in the uh, you know the the uh, sixty two fifty eight, and they'll use the other channels to make drums and still have you know six channels to mess with. So exactly. I think it's it's handled very well uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of tracks, uh, and I think that's you know it's it's a great chip, and it, it you know having those eight channels, having all that together, really just kind of it, it irons over it a little bit, if you will. Yeah, it, oh, absolutely. It, it makes it forgivable, if you will.
0: Yeah, you you work around the samples. They're such a small part of the (laughs) overall sound uh, that it it really doesn't matter that much.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: You're not talking about like the SNES where the entire thing is built out of sample playback.
1: So, yeah, I mean, a lot of times, so the YM2151 was paired up with traditionally the Sega PCM, which was just, you know, extra PCM channels. Uh, In fact, there was actually a module that you can get. And of course, it's ridiculous to find. And I don't really even know any games that use it that provides. It's called the PCM8 pcm 8 And it's actually an eight PCM module for the X68K, giving it you know its regular stuff and then eight channels of PCM. Um, (laughs) I I can I can't find anything on it. I think it was called the Mercury board, I believe, Um, and I I I can't find any information about it. it. It you know must be lost in the ages or. I'm not even sure. the huh. The X68K was also compatible with all of the Roland uh, pre-MIDI and MIDI products, so the MT32. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. So it, it, you know, it had that capability too. I think there's even MIDI versions of uh, the Castlevania soundtrack, for example, uh, Akamachi uh, Dracula. Yes,
2: yeah.
0: that stuff's as cool as just the the traditional fm audio setup for the system though
1: yeah yeah absolutely you know so it's interesting that there was still kind of like hobbyist stuff in there but and the ym2151 being versatile and kind of really used in lots and lots of arcade boards uh just shows a testament to that and you know that choice of putting that in this console really is like a homage to what we see in in the arcade
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think the graphics uh, sell it, but then the sound makes it. And I think that that, like having that big, cacophonous, like FM in your face of eight channels, kind of going off in different directions, is what I remember the arcade being as a kid. Yeah, uh, like very loud, aggressive FM pounding me in the face, like the turtles, uh, you know, the turtles arcade game or something, where mm-hmm. like it plays this very loud FM music right at you. It, those games were YM two one five one. Turtles in Time was YM two one five one. Um, And, you know, I just remember that chip. And so, it, you know, having it in my house would have been really cool if I could, you know, shell out (laughs) (laughs) $6,500.
0: So now that we've covered the chip itself, let's talk about the music. Uh, This is something that I'm kind of new to. I wasn't very familiar with X68K music, you know, asides from the Castlevania soundtrack before. Um, The music for the system is great.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it's going to it's gonna suck for everyone out there because we're going to try to cover, you know, a, a couple tracks here. But I know that everyone has their individual favorites for this. There's so many great soundtracks. Um, oh, yeah. You know, it, it's really hard to choose them. So hopefully we, we give you a, a general idea over here and you can kind of uh, explore, uh, you know, the other soundtracks on your own.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, we have resources like linked to help uh, find more soundtracks and stuff. So uh, where should we begin then?
1: Well, here, you know, another disappointing thing. Just kind of a small disclaimer. While I have the ability to record YM2151 stuff natively with the uh, MSX setup that I kind of have, I don't have the ability to capture the samples. Uh, it, there's no way the MSX can do that right now. Ah, uh, okay. So, so I, I apologize but in advance, but most of these tracks are going to be emulated rather than on hardware. Yeah. Um, you know, VTM Play does a very good job. Um, you know, so it, it, in the cases where I could record it off the hardware, I did, um, at the very least, but, you know, uh, so not all of these are going to be off hardware. So just a disclaimer. So it's
0: funny. I reached out to my friend, uh, Robbie from the shiz, uh, he plays in this band, uh, mountain chiefs and he does mm-hmm. some video game covers with them. And also, uh, a recent thing he's doing called stupid idiot. Um, it's pretty great. They cover, uh, Erica to Sitaru. You know, you, it's, yeah. <laughs> It's great. I'll, I'll send you the link. Uh, you got to okay. hear it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Robbie is like a huge like X68K music fan. Um, oh, he, wow. has, he has a thread on the shiz where he's like lo- ripped a lot of soundtracks to MP3 and stuff. Uh, we'll link that in the show notes because it's a great resource. Um, so I messaged him and asked him in advance, like, you know, what are some of your favorite 68K soundtracks? Um, and I think one of the first things he mentioned was Genocide 2 oh yeah Uh, which it it was already that that was something you were going to talk about already anyways right
1: yeah that that's probably my favorite uh, uh x68k soundtrack
0: Yeah, uh, this is really cool stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Genocide 2 started me down this crazy journey. Um, I stumbled on it while looking for interesting OPNA, which is the chip in the PC-98 uh, tracks on YouTube. And, you know, I, just after hearing this, it really got me hooked on the sound of the OPM. Uh, and I probably listened to the soundtrack from start to finish about three or four times a week.
0: <laughs> Though, you know, we keep bringing up the samples. Uh, the one thing that's kind of instantly noticeable here is the low quality of the symbol samples. Uh, a little unfortunate yeah uh, it it's interesting me, to me, yeah reminds me a little bit of like cymbal crashes on uh, like turbo graphics soundtracks kind of
1: yeah i mean a lot of x68k tracks will use fm instruments to make cymbal crashes kind of like yamane did in uh castlevania bloodlines um you know it's just interesting though i mean because fm really tends to lend itself to making great drums inside the fm channels themselves. But just kind of using this uh, this sample here, that one kind of sample, it's just a very glaring problem. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't detract from it overall that much. But I just, yeah, it's worth pointing out that it's kind of like, kind of cheap sounding.
1: Yeah, I I, I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole soundtrack is amazing. And the game is actually really, really fun. Uh, I've definitely played Genocide 2 on emulator before. Um, there's a really unfortunate Super Nintendo port. Stay away from it. Uh, oh, just, that's unfortunate. Yeah, just just stay away from it, yeah. Um, this was composed by the team of Hideyuki Shimona and Naoyuki Kimura, uh, two composers who worked at Zoom Incorporated in Japan. Not much is really known about either of them, actually.
0: Uh, it's interesting. There's a lot of composers who wrote for the X68K, that are really just specific
1: to this platform. Yeah, uh, these guys would be that example. I I mean, they wrote great stuff, but they really only wrote for the X68K. Um, So just kind of, you know, because I can't only play one song from this game. Here's another song uh, from Genocide 2.
0: Yeah, and so coming up on the list here, again, Robbie also mentioned the Overtake soundtrack, which uh, by coincidence you were also going to mention regardless here in the episode anyways. Um, What's up with
1: the Overtake soundtrack? So it's these same two guys uh, (laughs) who wrote it. It's it's ironic that two of the most well-known soundtracks for this system, and arguably I'd say two of the best soundtracks for the system, were written by the same two guys. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So let's listen to a track from Overtake.
0: There's some uh, cool guitar sounds in there.
1: Yeah, I actually really like the guitar sounds. I- I'd say, you know, honestly, uh, just I know that this is kind of like even just I-, I love this music, but it's a little cheesy. <laughs> it definitely is a little cheesy, <laughs> um, but uh, there's something really great about it and just kind of free just like the way that I expect FM to be, you know, and, and again, I'd say these guys did some of the best work on this entire con- this entire console slash PC. <laughs>
0: Uh again I think this is going to be a pretty obvious choice for the platform um mm-hmm. but it's it deserves to be mentioned it's not not just cuz it's popular but cuz it's fantastic mm-hmm. it's the Akumajou Dracula um you know essentially a Castlevania 1 remake sort of you know yeah it's called the Castlevania 1 remake because you're Simon Belmont and some very few parts of the game are like kind of similar uh, yeah. it's just it's just another Castlevania game though really uh with like a few covers of classic themes um But it's it's a great soundtrack with some original music as well. There's an awesome loading song, like when you first boot the game in. The game mostly plays just like during a loading screen. Like you don't, it's not really set to anything, Uh, and this track is fantastic.
1: So it's great to hear another Castlevania game in FM, you know, in addition to Castlevania Bloodlines. Uh, this one was composed by the Konami Kohei Ha Club. Uh, and, so that, and that's Konami's in-house band. Um, so that, And it's also credited to the following composers, which I'll read. So it's Hiroshi Koyashi, Keizo Nakamura, Kenichi Matsubara, Kinyo Yamashita, Kiyohiro Sada, which is a name that we should know.
0: Yeah, Keisada. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Uh, Satoi Terashima, Shinchan. And Tunmakun no Papa, which would translate to kun's Papa.
0: What's with all these Papas? <laughs> well, I'm glad you had to read all those names and not me. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, some of the names, Kaniyo Yamashita and Sato Terashima were the original composers of Castlevania 1. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if they actually worked on this port or if they're just being credited because there's covers of Castlevania 1 music in it. It's very uh, possible. Yeah. Keisada's in there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting. I know, I believe at some point they left Konami for Natsume. They did some non Konami NES soundtracks like uh, Abadox and Scat. Mm hmm. So it's interesting. I wonder what their involvement would be at this time. I didn't believe they were involved with the original Castlevania. So that's
1: interesting. Um, so Keizo Nakamura is listed as one of the composers here. Not to be confused with Kozo Nakamura. Kozo Nakamura is the composer for all the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle games. Keizo Nakamura only worked uh, for Konami on two games. Uh, he was a sound designer. And he worked for Akumaju Dracula for the X68 and Castlevania Rondo of Blood. Those are the only two games he worked. Uh, coincidentally, Akamachi Dracula comes out in July on July 23rd, 1993. Three months later, Castlevania Rondo of Blood comes out. So, oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's interesting that, to put that kind of in context. So this was kind of towards the end of the X68K's life.
0: Yeah, something I like about the soundtrack is that it's very – tasteful and considerate of when to use covers of existing Castlevania songs and also just throwing in new content. Mm -hmm. For example, of course, you know, the first stage does uh, Vampire Killer. When you get to the boss, they decided to stick in an original track. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you remember the original Castlevania, the boss fight theme in that is just a very simple, repetitive jingle. Um, Yeah. You know, it's uh, an okay track, it's not the best Castlevania track, so they took the opportunity, they probably thought to themselves, oh we can come up with something more interesting this time around. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, this is another original track they came up with, I think it sounds pretty great. One other track in here that I know Robbie really liked is uh, Thrasher in the Cave, the stage two <laughs> music. Um, I remember he was sort of like almost lamenting that there's so many like metal covers of Castlevania music, uh, like m- maybe almost cross the line, like going out of the, their way to be metal. Uh, whereas like he, he, he's saying like the song is metal, though, like just cover this one like exactly as it is. Uh, and it's, it's perfect. So uh, here's Thrasher in the Cave.
1: So we kind of covered Konami's experience here. Why don't we talk about Capcom? Um, so Capcom's final fight was released on the console as well. Uh, and this was composed by Capcom's house team of Manami Matsumai, Harumi Fujita, Iwashi Fujita, also known as Boon Boom, Boom uh, Yoko Shimomura, and Yuki-chan's papa, which is Yoshishiro Sakaguchi. Um, you know, lots of papas here, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's listen to the intro song.
0: we mentioned that much of the arcade development for a lot of the Capcom games of this era was on the x68k uh, as a result the gameplay and soundtracks are very similar uh, here's that same track but on the Capcom uh, CP arcade board
1: So I guess one of the stark differences is the arcade version features the OKI MSM6295, which is the upgraded version of the OKI MSM6258. Um, it features four channels of the same 4-bit ADPCM. So the uh, X68K has one, the, uh, the CP board has four. Huh. Um, that being said, I, I kind of actually really like the X60K version better.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't know that all those extra samples uh, are necessary. Uh, it's cool, but uh...
1: they're kind of they're kind of a little chintzy too. They, it, like I, I get it, but I mean, and I'm sure that the arcade version is probably the original, and you know they have kind of co-developed. But I think you know sometimes having more is is less. You know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah,
0: no, I can think of multiple examples where I, I prefer a more like chip version of the soundtrack over a, like a red audio version. Oh yeah, absolutely. like um Snatcher, Uh Yeast Three, like those oh, are yeah. sound- like the, the chip versions of the soundtracks are better than like the full synth versions. So
1: yeah, so you know I don't want to get back into history too much, but it's interesting to just kind of step back for a second because a lot of uh, pretty famous video game composers or just famous composers in general got their you know start by writing for Japanese computer games. Um, it, there was kind of a computer music renaissance during this time, and, and many you know, important composers found their way. Um, Koei, the company that we all kind of know for making Romance of the Three Kingdoms and Nabunaga's Ambition, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it's been around for a long time, originally started out as a company with literally a husband and wife team who were you know, filling out catalog orders from their own house, saving the games onto discs and sending them out to people. Um, wow. And their composer, somehow, somehow, in some weird way, their composer at that time was a very young Yoko Kano <laughs> of Cowboy Bebop fame and many, many other important mm-hmm. soundtracks, like uh, a huge list. Um, I mean, and one of her first works was actually for Koé, for Romance of the Three Kingdoms, uh, for the PC-88 and Sharp X1. So, you know, you never know if these little jobs you take here and there uh, are going to lead to something, especially, you know, uh, if you're a composer. Um, it's just amazing to see that like that's where she got her start.
0: You mean um, uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms is not the height of Yoko Kano's career?
1: No, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the, the main theme to it is actually really great. Um, so is the, the main theme to Naga's ambition is great. I remember there's Listening to it on the old uh, orchestral sound versions or the the the, the video games with an orchestra soundtracks, mm-hmm. they, they did a really great job with that. I, I think it was arranged by her too, which is even cooler. Um, but I mean, like she got her start on this, and yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just so cool.
0: So another really famous uh, composer that got their start on the Sharp 68K is Motoy Sakuraba.
1: toy sakurama this track this is the intro to soul Fies, or soul Dees, it was called here for some reason i don't What the hell, whatever okay. <laughs> okay sure why not um it was released on the mega drive as well um and you know it's interesting to hear his style in kind of a, a, an older form um his background is prog rock he played in prog rock bands and he was always kind of considered uh, you know as they called him, the Lord of the Board, you know, for synths and and whatnot. So Mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense that he's writing FM stuff at this time. So here's another track from uh, a game he worked on for the X68K, uh, Arcus Odyssey.
0: Here's something interesting. According to the notes on VGM Rip, the soundtrack for Arcus Odyssey only uses five channels of FM instead of all eight, uh, and the 6258 for samples. And this game was ported to the Genesis, so it's sort of like uh, he was bearing those limitations in mind?
1: I kind of think so. Uh, just, Just as a comparison, let's listen to the same track that we just heard, but on the OPN2, which is the YM2612, or the Mega Drive. So obviously, I think he was planning in advance. I mean, Wolf Team was kind of a small team as well at that time, and for them to even get something out on the Mega Drive was probably kind of a, a huge effort by them, um, considering you know software just requires you to put things on a disc or, or whatnot, and hardware you know if you're making something for Genesis, you have to make a cartridge. It's complicated, um, but I, I really feel like he met that limitation. I just think it's funny. I, I, I've really respected Motoi Sakurawa's work for many, many years. He's one of my favorite composers. And I feel like sometimes he has found ways to not phone it in, but cut corners. Like like he could probably sit down and write a town theme in like 20 seconds if he really wanted to by just noodling around. Because he can mm-hmm. play like three keyboards at the same time. <laughs> I wonder if this is kind of just him using that. And I, I don't even know if it's cutting corners. It's kind of like uh, being frugal. You know, he he, he knows that it's th- got
0: to be on plat- both platforms, and yep. he knows the Genesis has those limitations, so it's just kind mm-hmm. of like, let me write
1: to the Genesis' limitations. It, um, it's interesting that means Wolf Team was probably thinking this is going to be on both consoles, so write to these limitations. So moving away from Sakurawa-san, another composer I must mention, really because of the tragedy of all, is Manipu Saito. He produced music for only a couple games for the X60K. And a couple of really great soundtracks, too. Um, unfortunately, he died in uh, for a kidney failure at age 22. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. He also worked on the SNES game Smart Ball. I don't know if you've ever played that. I remember ah, renting it. Yeah. Like, I don't remember any of the music from it. Um, but one of his most celebrated works, I guess, for the X68K is 38,000 Kilo no Koku. Um, so let's, let's hear an example from that.
0: I just, I really love the, just the rhythms throughout the track. It's very like, uh, I don't want to say herky jerky, but it, it, it has just, a, it's really cool
1: sounding. It's smart. It, it kind of reminds me of, for lack of a better term, cheap dinosaurs-esque uh, okay, yeah. kind of push and pull. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if Dino would agree, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it reminds me of that kind of feel. The whole soundtrack kind of does, where it's like a combination of jazz fusion, jam, uh progressive rock like it's just it's a very interesting soundtrack it's some really like heartful moments um i mean i'm gonna link the soundtrack here uh please go and do yourself a favor and listen to this entire soundtrack because it's pretty deep uh and i think kind of knowing the background and just reading up a little bit about the game which is kind of it's a visual novel um which is a very you know it was a very popular format for pc games in japan at the time um yeah, it, it, it's it's actually just really great music, and it, it's a great listen. So absolutely, uh, like you must listen to the soundtrack.
0: <laughs> so we have another soundtrack here: uh, Cyberblock Metal Orange X. <laughs> um,
1: well, yeah. What's the deal with this game, Steve? Let's just be honest. It's an erotic puzzle game.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that, that that's a thing. It is a thing. Yeah,
1: it is. It is. Some of these eroge games have amazing soundtracks. Um, yeah, they do. So it, that's that's weird. You wouldn't expect it, but some of these games have incredible soundtracks. Yeah. One of the real interesting things I guess that I discovered when I was looking at, you know, Japanese PC games is that it was kind of a lawless territory. Anyone could make games for anything. There was no board saying like, "Hey, you know, you can't make this game because it has swearing in it or something like right. that." Because Nintendo had like a vice grip on things. They could control it, but there was no licensing. Anyone could make a game and put it on a disc and sell it. And that's kind of what happened at this time. So that led to a lot of adult games, basically, as they called them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and there's big money in adult games, you know. It's kind of a law – you know, this lawlessness, unfortunately, eventually led to some pretty tasteless games, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Problematic games, uh, you know, uh, which – you know, the likes of which pretty much eventually led to Japan having to have the first ratings on games. Um, you know, just as much as Night Trap was kind of that for us, um, games yeah, like the, One. The, oh, yeah, sorry, these, these
0: these games are go way worse than Night Trap, though. Oh
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, it, you can you can look up the history of this. It's in the the Hardcore Gaming 101 uh, article that we're attaching here. They have the list of the games um you know so uh i guess <laughs> trigger yeah, warning right exactly it's <laughs> t- t- at your own risk adult yeah. games
0: are one thing but you know th- these cross the line it's not yeah, it's I mean, not as innocent as bubble bath babes so
1: yeah oh, or 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 this game cyberblock metal orange um right <laughs> um so yeah it's it's a weird it's it's weird but it, they were widely accepted and a lot of the um, visual novels were adult but in very tasteful ways mm-hmm. um I think one of the, mo- the most, the funniest comment from uh, the Hardcore Gaming 101 thing was kind of like, yes, please emulate these games, but don't emulate anything for the PC 98, you know, if you have children around, because it could just randomly turn into naked people. Oh yeah, yeah. Be- like That's it'll yeah, just be like, oh, it. you know, you're playing this fun platformer, and then there's just a bunch of naked people. So there you go. Uh, you know, so don't play PC 98 games. You know, they're they're not suitable for work. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> a warning. <laughs> um, but getting back to this game, Cyber Block Metal Orange EX. Um, this was composed by Momoku and Resin, um, which are the aliases of Hitoshi Sakimoto and Masahiro Mata, ah, which okay. are really famous people. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, they've made a million games as a pair, including Tactics Ogre, Final Fantasy Tactics, Final Fantasy XII. I I mean, those are three that I picked out that I could think of. The list is freaking huge. so.
0: So let's take a listen to one of the lighter tunes from the soundtrack.
1: I really do. And just to hear Hitoshi Sakimoto like back in the day, it still had some great chops. And a of course too. Um but I, <laughs> I can't help but feel cheated with that bad symbol. <laughs> I just can't help but yeah. feel cheated with the bad symbol.
0: Oh, it's 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 a bit silly sounding. Uh, yeah. Uh,
1: I, like what, what is it with composers and that sampled symbol in this error? I mean, the FM symbol sounds great. It, it, the FM cymb- the FM channels are really built to making it, like a real great tenory sound, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just really confusing to me <laughs> uh,
0: Another soundtrack that Robbie recommended to us was uh, Neural Gear um, This one Oh compo- yeah,
1: that, that was composed by KT Yanow
0: Yeah, and uh, what's, what's the deal with that composer again? So
1: he, he's done a couple of other tracks uh, Asuka 120% Burning Fest, like, I have no clue um, Is another great soundtrack though That's another good one to look up um, But yeah, I mean He, he has multiple soundtracks on uh, The platform
0: Yeah, um, so we found a track here uh, from Neural Gear that I thought was really cool uh, called Supersonic. So earlier in the episode, I mentioned that I like the chip version of the Yeast 3 soundtrack more than the, like, the Red Book audio. Um, when I said that, I specifically had the Sega Genesis version of the soundtrack in mind. Uh, Super Nintendo soundtrack is pretty good, too. I, I have like an absolute soft spot for the Genesis soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually never had heard the X68K soundtrack before either, uh, and this is right up there with it. Um, you know, I just gave this a listen the other day. I think it sounds fantastic.
1: Another interesting kind of soundtrack, and I don't know if it's interesting because it's just interesting, I don't know if it's necessarily fantastic, is uh, there's a, a ni- 1991, There's a game released called Star Wars Attack on the Death Star, which was basically almost note for note FM versions of Star Wars tracks. And it's credited to Yuzo Koshiro.
2: Uh,
0: so that, that's unfortunate that like, so you're saying that we can't expect like Koshiro versions of Star Wars music.
1: No, it seems that it's very note for note. So why don't we listen to the Cantina theme from this soundtrack, which is probably the best track on this very unfortunate soundtrack.
0: Yeah, it, it it doesn't fully utilize uh, Koshiro's talents.
1: No, I mean you know sometimes you got to take a paycheck, right? I, oh yeah, I, uh,
0: absolutely, yeah. No, you can't can't fault him for that at all. <laughs> um, it, the only reason we're pointing it out is because we're such big fans of his music. Like he he's made so much awesome stuff that it's just funny finding
1: this one kind of odd odd thing in his uh in his work history here. So. I wanted to dig deep a little bit here on some of the lesser-known uh, X68K stuff that I kind of ran into. One of them would be Slimier? Slimier. Yeah, we were looking at the title of this. It's, it looks like it, it's like Slimer, but with
0: a Y added in there. Slim Slimier. Slimier.
1: It, the title screen reads, The short story takes place in Fantasyland. In this land, slimes are come to crisis, and you are the hero of the slimes' world, slime So So, yeah, I guess yeah, I, I,
0: I, I, I think slime Yeah, I think that's, yeah, how, I, that's it. Yeah, I'll, I'll go
1: with slime slime. Meyer, slime, slime. Anyway, the music <laughs> for this game, even though there's only 18 minutes of the whole soundtrack, is actually really fantastic. It's written by uh, Toshimitsu Kawano. Um, I don't think there's anything else that was written by them. So this could have just been like, uh, I mean, I don't even know who the hell found this soundtrack, which is just, (laughs) and posted this, uh, I can't find BGMs for it. I can only find it on, uh, YouTube. So, uh, this is going to be like a YouTube recording of this, but let's listen to the, uh, opening track, uh, from Slim Year. suppose that one of the last soundtracks i wanted to talk about here was scion 2 it's also kind of another lesser known soundtrack it was composed by uh zenji nishikawa uh, and uh, tetsushi takahashi um again probably a small team uh it was produced by nihon softbank which is not a small company but probably a smaller team um but the soundtrack is really funky and really 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 good um so let's take a listen to one of the tracks from it. There's so many great soundtracks uh, and I, there's just not enough time for me to, for, for us to sit here and just talk about all of them. Like there, there's so many hidden gems out there. Um, so kind of in the spirit of what we've been doing the last couple of episodes, I've been trying to keep track of them. And I made a Google sheet uh, about that, about it that I can attach here. Um, it's my best guess as, as, of most of the composers, as well as links to the soundtracks so you can listen. So, I think there's like 443 games on here, and I might have 120 soundtracks. So that's a pretty good start. I'm going to try to keep filling it in, um, but it should serve as a nice guide for your listening. Some of them are in VGM form, some of them are just YouTube channels that you can listen to at work, so you can kind of explore around and hear everything. Uh, you know, yeah, and- this
0: is a this is a really awesome spreadsheet you made. Uh, oh, thanks. It's, yeah, I think it's a, if you want to jump into, like, break the ice on um, X68K music and don't want to be bothered with, you know, getting VGM players and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, you, you can just find tons of YouTube links in Steve's document here. Um, so yeah, th- this is a great place to jump in. You can find a lot of awesome music.
1: Yeah, I'll probably go through and highlight some that I think are, like, must-listens. There's a couple in there that are must-listens, like, yeah, definitely listen to all of Genocide 2. Uh, we didn't highlight it, but Granada by Moto Sakuraba is really good, and Masagi, Masaki Uno, which is mm-hmm. another uh, popular composer. Uh, there's just too many for us to cover in this episode, so it, it, you should be able to get hear a lot of the great stuff that was on this, and hopefully you have, you'll have even b- more appreciation for it after we kind of just highlighted and talked about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Excellent. So I think that about wraps up the uh, main chunk of the episode.
1: So, uh, what's going on?
0: Um, so, uh, recently in Philly, I saw BitBrigade live, uh, I know you got, like, swamped with a bunch of shit, you just, you drove back from Boston, um, the night before, and, like, it just, there there, there was a snowstorm, um, so I know it sucks you couldn't make it, um, but I saw BitBrigade, and I was talking to Bryant, uh, from BitBrigade, and he, they were all listening to the podcast while they were traveling. Oh, Wow. Yeah, and uh, he actually had awesome feedback on the Lost NES Music episode um, because BitBrigade has performed. If any listeners aren't familiar with them, they're fantastic. Um, you know, like NES cover band, where they have one member of the band who plays the NES, um, not as an instrument. He, he plays the video game, and the band will play the music to that game. Um, you know, as it's happening. So if he suddenly dies or he beats a boss, it's the music changes to match the gameplay. And uh, they've performed Ninja Gaiden Live, and so they know there's an example from that. Um, it's one of the bosses' like death cutscenes. Mm-hmm. Um, that is an example of music that gets cut off early. And uh, when we did Lost NES Music episode, I tried to include every example I could think of for that category. Um, and so that's that was one I didn't know about at all. And uh, oh, wow. so they they've covered the whole thing before, like for recording the song. Um, but they never get to play the whole thing live because it doesn't, you know, the gameplay doesn't allow it. Uh, so I thought that was a cool example. We'll play the, uh, full track here, uh, so you guys can hear it.
1: So just taking a look at some of the comments from, uh, you know, our last episode, uh, which was a doozy, but it was a really great episode. S says, uh, is there ever going to be an episode on Tim Fallon? Uh, you can't avoid that any longer. Yeah, it, I know. Um, <laughs> we're oh, yeah, working I, on it. Like, that's definitely something in, in, in the cards. Um, oh, yeah. I think we want
0: to. Uh, Jeff will be included in there as well, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. The, 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 I you love can't talk I, about
1: one without the other, really.
0: Yeah, no, I love the Wolverine soundtrack, and I believe that's Jeff Fallen, So, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I, I love Tim stuff too. Um, yeah, so many good soundtracks like Treasure Master, Wolverine, obviously yeah. Silver Surfer, um, mm-hmm. Pictionary, Pictionary. <laughs> Pictionary. <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> a horribly unplayable game. It's like well-programmed, amazing soundtrack, but it's just the controls is kind of like you're trying to draw with like an etch-a-sketch, but yeah. instead of an etch-a-sketch, you're using the D-pad on an NES. And then your partner is supposed to guess what you're drawing. Uh, it, it, it looks like incomprehensible scribbles. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've never tried to play that game. I've only just like heard it. I, it's one of those things where I heard I, when I first heard the soundtrack, I just burst out laughing. I'm like, what the heck? I mean, cause just... I didn't, I didn't know who Tim Fallon was at the time, but oh, yeah, the,
0: there's like other game modes and puzzle kind of stuff in there. But yeah, the actual like pictionary part of it, it's like, it's really impossible. Yeah. Um, I think I had to draw something like kind of amorphous once too. Like it was something like rag. Mm-hmm. It's like how do I draw a rag? Like I don't even know. Like I don't even know if I could draw that like on paper with like a pencil in a few seconds and like have someone like know like yeah that's a rag. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: know, like, I don't.
0: <laughs> they're trying to draw that with a pad on the NES. Forget it. Yeah oh yeah so uh, carl from philly left the comment about base wars something that i completely forgot about uh i was pointing out how ridiculous that game is it's a baseball game but you play with robots and mm-hmm. there's actual fighting between the robots um but one of the things is you can steer a ball after you pitch it <laughs> so like you're playing against someone else and like you can f- you just sit there with the d-pad like mashing it and like twisting it and uh you can throw, like, the most annoying curveballs that it makes it so frustrating for the person, who, the other person who's trying to hit it. Uh, <laughs> so he says, uh, I've broken so many controllers playing my older brother in this game because you could control the ball when you pitched and he would always just spiral it for an impossible pitch. Easy strike. It's possibly my favorite NES sam- uh, sample sound ever. The yeah that plays when you hit a home run is top-notch. And I say it all the time and no one ever gets the reference. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah! So we have some comments here from Hun Retro Geek. It's good to see you here. I hope you're yes. doing great. Um, so just kind of looking at one of these in particular, uh, he's uh, Hun Retro Geek writes. Uh, I'm absolutely amazed by how much presence video games have claimed regarding academia. Uh, I might just end up writing my thesis on the importance of video games in American culture myself, from the early moments until today. It's interesting. I mean, what drove me to do my original music degrees was my interest in this stuff. Um, and I mean, like, I don't, it's interesting cause I think it was basically even, I mean, I was in school 10 years ago and it was, it wasn't like, it was kind of laughed at that I, you know, liked video game music, right? right <laughs> you know, so, yeah. uh, just seeing that it's kind of becoming more mainstream, you know, I mean, I, I was basically a film minor too. And I saw that there was a lot of things that they were doing a preservation of film that we should be doing with video games. So yeah, people yes. like, you know, video game music preservation fund and, um, and Frank Schaffalicky, and just other people who are trying to preserve this and write this stuff down. I mean, I just there's tons of composers that have just been lost with time over the history of you know classical music that we you know. If someone had written something down, if one thing had rolled another way, we would have known about. And it's really sad because even just things in recent history, not 200 years ago, like 20 years ago, we're we're losing in some places here. So I think that there has to be like a a movement for academic preservation of this and also studying it. There's a reason why people did what they did. And uh, there's a process to that. So it's very great. You know, it's great to have people like Kevin out there, and Bert. Uh, Mm -hmm. doing this kind of uh, of work and you know it was great to have him on the show to to you know because I mean he does this for a living basically um, which is completely admirable and Mm -hmm. I am exceedingly jealous and I didn't say that on (laughs) the thing but (laughs) I'm very jealous of that I've always (laughs) kind of wanted to do that I guess my place is more of the writing than than writing you know writing actual music as opposed to writing it all down but I'm glad someone is writing it all down and that's the, the real key thing here.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, the thing that's interesting to me is it's video game, video game music and just video games in general is a very legitimate part of history <laughs> that no matter what will be taken seriously in an academic setting. Uh, it's just the question is like to what extent and yeah. how, how many people will really be interested in it. Um, it. It's definitely, I mean, it can't be avoided. If you want to talk about the history of computers, for example, um, this is a, a huge component of that. Yeah. Um, so, it, and it's it's interesting, how, like you said, how much history is getting lost. Uh, it just just asking someone a simple question, oh, how did you make this, or you know, what resources did you have at the time? Um, and just one person asking these kind of questions can make all the difference in preserving this kind of history.
1: I mean, just, you know, it just so happened that Jeremy Parrish asked, you know, uh, Hidenori Mizawa about the VRC6, and then we yep. found out the whole history of it. And there's moments like that that exist out there all over the place that we're, we're, we're just not learning about, you know, like right. we're, we're, with some people are running out of time, you know. Um, so it, I'm glad that people have interest in it, and I hope that that interest drives uh, more, uh studying and writing down and preserving this stuff now while we still have the opportunity to talk to the people who did it you know oh absolutely
0: okay so claw uh, mentioned um they said i swear i've heard that chorus at 36 seconds uh mark into track seven of the Getsufu madden soundtrack somewhere before is it a cover or something it's driving me crazy um i don't know actually it is covered in um the yy world soundtracks Mm -hmm. so i'm thinking maybe it's possible claw has heard it there before Mm -hmm. um but i'm not too sure though if it maybe it could just be very similar to another konami riff somewhere else um but i'm pretty sure it's it's just all original to that game so
1: we got one last comment here from i'm a track man uh he writes, every single fire and ice bass sample is out of tune with the triangle, and it infuriates me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well,
1: it yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, it's gonna be. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I I
0: love like the weird kind of out of tuneness of the melodic TPCM samples. Um,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Fire and ice is an example we pointed out that has those melodic bass samples, very short, staccato, kind of farty kind of sound almost. Um, but yeah, the, the way it doubles up and clashes with the triangle at times is kind of off-putting. But.
1: I mean, it's two instruments that are kind of fundamentally going to be out of tune, too, because the triangle also has yeah, its own Yeah, the triangle issues. has its own so it's yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it was a good idea to try, I guess, you know, but...
0: <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah, and, and after recording the Konami episode, too, I discovered an other Konami soundtrack and I, that I had we completely missed when we recorded the episode... Um, I think it's Top Gun 2, the second mm-hmm. mission, that one has these sampled bass lines in it, uh, and it's just like, oh, you know, whenever we're, we're always starved to think of examples of NES games outside of Sunsoft that have melodic um, samples in them, and th- that's a really cool example that we, we missed to put in the episode, I'll just play a quick example here, because it is totally crazy.
1: Patrick, did anyone successfully name that game uh, from our last episode?
0: Yes, they did. Uh, As a quick refresher, this is what we played last episode. And so that was Menacing uh, from Lemmings. And that was correctly guessed by Martial Art, Uh, my friend's uh, Martial Art. I actually don't know if that's JMR or Misha using the account. (laughs) Uh, So uh, congrats to JMR and or Misha for correctly guessing. Um, Menacing, yeah. Because that – I love – the we keep talking about lemmings we're gonna do a lemmings uh episode we're gonna eventually. do a
1: lemmings episode and you guys are all gonna be sorry we did one because it's gonna be so exhaustive <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: <laughs> okay so uh without further ado uh this is a track we've got picked out for this episode so see if you can name that game All right, so that leaves us off at the uh, fi- you know the final moments of our episode here. Steve, do you have a Song of the Week picked out?
1: Yeah, I- I'm going to go with uh, something from Genocide 2. Um, probably, I think, my favorite track of, of all of it, I mean, everything in, in there is really good, would be Red Hot Atmosphere. I- I've noticed that almost everyone who rips this track makes it play four times through instead of two, uh, and I think it's actually, w- <laughs> it's probably worth listening to uh, You know, four times through, Uh, it's it's a great track. Uh, It has some really intricate parts and some actually some really great FM work. So we have it right here. Take a listen to it, and thank you for listening to Retro Game Audio.